0: Hello and welcome to All About Animals Radio. My name's Gary and this is the third part in our series on effective animal advocacy. In this programme we talk with leading experts to find out what makes them tick and the tools and strategies they use to advocate effectively. Today I am joined by one of the UK's most prominent wildlife protection and animal welfare campaigners. He is an author, broadcaster, public speaker, writer, policy advisor to the Born Free Foundation and co-host of Off The Leash Podcasts. It is, of course, Dominic Dyer. Hello, Dominic, and thank you for spending your Tuesday evening here with us on AAA Radio.
1: Not at all. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you.
0: If you have any questions or comments for Dominic during the show, you can send them to us at studio at AAAradio.online or message us on Twitter, and we are at Animals Radio. Dominic, looking at your LinkedIn profile in preparation for this, um, you've been there, done that, and must have a wardrobe full of T-shirts. Tell me a little bit about how you got started and how you got to where you are today.
1: Yes, it's it's interesting. I've been talking about this quite a bit recently. I did a a presentation to students at London University a few weeks ago about my campaigning work and, and started to give them an idea of how I got into this profession, which many of them were very interested and fascinated in doing work in when they reached, you know, beyond university education and we're looking at careers and things. Um, I didn't come into conservation wildlife protection from the the usual route that many people come in. They rather come in, you know, from the science environment sector, studying particular areas uh, like marine biology and things like that. I came in primarily from from government and corporate work. Um, you know, I left the school, interestingly enough, at 16 years of age with not much in the way of an education, um, had O levels, which is, you know, in Britain, a sort of standard entry level education system to get you into college and then into university, yeah. didn't go to university. Um Came south with my father who lost his job in the north of England, Uh, originally started working on building sites um, just to get some work. And then um, I wanted to sort of get out of the rain and, and, and get a job in an office environment. So I applied for what was called the Civil Service Commission in the late 1980s, which was like a clearinghouse for admin assistants, junior clerks to go into different government departments. And I applied and had an interview, did well at an interview. And um, they said, we'll come back to you in a few days and we'll send you to a particular department of state. And it could have been anything. They could have sent me to Social Security or they could have sent me off to health or somewhere, education. Or I might have never been seen again. But they actually sent me to the Minister of Agriculture. And the first place I went to was their legal department and actually started to go with um, lawyers from the, from the government to court cases dealing with animal cruelty. Illegal poisoning of dogs was one of the first things that I actually went to court, Lincoln Crown Court on. So from the very beginning, I was lucky. I was working in an environment where animal welfare and then on to agriculture and and food production and other issues that I've, I've got very involved with as my career developed. So I think I was fortunate at the beginning that I just got into the right department that opened up my horizons. I spent 13 years a ministry of agriculture working in a wide range of areas from marine environment protection organic farming looking at different issues around food production working in trade policy in the uk and in brussels as we, as our relationship with the european community developed in the 1990s and the eu enlarged and learned a great deal about government and a great deal about how our system of government worked and how the environment of food production and wildlife protection policy was developed as well i left that piece of work at in terms of the civil service in in 2000 and went to work in the food industry. Um, And I started to work in an organization called the Food and Drink Federation, where I I really began to bring in my sort of wider knowledge and interest in what was happening in in, in different areas of the food industry, organic food production, plant-based foods in their early days, you know, working with companies like Alpro and Linda McCartney Foods and companies like Corn that have become quite significant brands now. But in the early days of when they were producing meat alternative foods or dairy alternative foods and spent a lot of my time traveling around the world, really beginning to understand how the food industry was developing, how we were looking at sustainable sourcing of raw materials, looking at animal welfare issues, and looking at how consumers were looking to identify with more sustainable animal friendly foods. And I really enjoyed working in that area during that time. I then went on to work in the plant science industry uh, and more controversial areas as head of the Crop Protection Association in in Britain and also sitting on the board of the European Crop Protection Association in Europe as well. Um, Working with big companies like Syngenta and Dow chemicals and companies like Monsanto that, you know, at times are involved in quite controversial areas of plant science, genetic modification of food, use of pesticides. But I learned a great deal about how we needed to look at technology to grow more food for a rapidly growing population, spent more time in South America, Africa, and other parts of the world, particularly in developing nations, looking at the challenges of trying to protect wildlife on one side and feeding a growing population on the other. So all of that really set the scene for me (laughs) to come into, into the work I do today, where I'm really a campaigner for animal welfare and wildlife protection. But that didn't happen just because uh, you know of, of a direct interest. I, I built up experience and knowledge. I started to take more interest in wildlife issues when I was working in industry. I became trustee of a charity and then became chair of the charity Care for the Wild International. And when I was working in places place like Africa, I had a chance to look at the wildlife projects we were supporting there and go out with in kenya for example with the kenyan wildlife service looking at the anti out- poaching operations we were funding and that really taught me a great deal about the pressures of, of what we were trying to do to protect wildlife on one side and, and allow people to develop and improve their living standards on the other you know, particularly in africa um, so it was that sort of gateway that made me think that actually i'd like to be more involved in the debate about wildlife protection at home and abroad and I'd like to bring all my skills into that area, which is why I basically left industry in 2012 to become a campaigner for wildlife, which is where I am today.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're, you're essentially a, a grassroots campaigner, aren't you? you? You're not. You you are associated with um, the Born Free Foundation, but for all intents and purposes, you 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 kind of stand alone as a grassroots campaigner.
1: Yeah, I get involved in lots of things. You know, I, I started working in 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 wildlife. Primarily in bovine TB was an area of work that I got involved with because I, I was very closely involved with farming industry and industry sector, particularly in plant science. And I was very concerned about the debate in Britain about bovine TB spread from cattle to wildlife and yeah. a policy that was being led to kill badgers, which is a protected species in this country. So one of the reasons why I started lobbying and campaigning to begin with was to try and deal with that issue where i thought there were fundamental faults in government and in the farming industry's approach to it and i thought to kill wildlife was significantly costly cruel and not an effective way of controlling Absolutely. the disease yeah. so that's where i got involved um i began to work for care for the wild international the charity i mentioned that i was actually a chair of so i basically stepped down from the chair of that organization to work at a, a staff level took a big pay cut as i came out of industry and lobbying and then i actually was offered the role of chief executive of the Badger Trust because of my interest in in, in badgers and t- TB. So I took that on. We merged Care for the Wild International with the Born Free Foundation because we were doing similar work in Africa, and it was just a, a good thing to do between the two organizations. So I sort of went into Born Free as a, as a result of that merger, bringing our resources and expertise together. So I effectively did two jobs. I was chief executive of the Badger Trust in Britain between 2013 and 2020, as well as doing policy work for Born Free. And in that period of time, I just built up my campaigning across a wide range of British wildlife and international wildlife issues. And and it really was a case, I think, of I was a good speaker in industry. I was a good speaker in government. People knew those skills. They'd pay a lot of money for it. But I started to really use that to try and be a voice for, for the voiceless, for wildlife protection, animal welfare. And it could be on a wide range of issues that I was able to apply those skills to. And I think it caught the imagination of people at a period of time where social media was exploding I think there was growing concern about what we needed to do to stand up for the natural world. And I was probably just a strong voice in the right place at the right time to harness that interest. And I was able to articulate and understand what happens in politics in a way that maybe other people didn't quite have those same skills and knowledge. And that's what I really applied to it.
0: And there's there's many tools in the advocate toolbox ranging from what might now be considered old school, like petitions or leafleting and demonstrations. And of course, we've now got social media. So, it's, but it's it's clearly a, a multifaceted approach. You have a, a quite a good deal of experience as a change maker, and you've probably been involved in every approach that is possible. Do you think more? some are more effective than others? And if so, which ones and why? Yeah,
1: so, you know, I- Speaking again, i go back to London University a few weeks ago when I was speaking to young students there about this, you know, I, I took them through a number of different campaigns. I talked about badges and bovine TB. I talked about some of what we're doing on whales and dolphins in the Faroe Islands at the moment, some of the issues around the use of bare fur hats by the British Army another campaign that I'm heavily involved with. And, I, and in each one, I tried to explain to them, you know, what we were doing to try and tell people what the issue was about what the science ethical issues were that we were trying to address what the political issues were trade issues whatever it might be and in many of these areas an issue looks very simple on the surface it's right or wrong or people can get angry about it but the more you sort of try and take it apart it gets more and more complex there's lots of different interest groups are pushing for different decisions to be taken Um, the frustration with a lot of what we do is there's no easy answers or solutions, and there's no way that you can sort of turn around these issues in, in, in a short period of time. I've been campaigning against bovine TB badger culling since 2013, so we've effectively had a policy going on that I have at times you know, caused problems for the government, raised concerns with the public, had lots of protest marches and media, but we haven't stopped it. Um, and, and, and that's you know, one of the key problems that we often face with these things. They are complex, they are difficult, but ultimately what I try to do is, is to simplify the arguments, to use emotion, to use ethics, to drive awareness uh, by a combination of routes. Social media has been incredibly powerful uh, and has developed rapidly and very quickly, but all traditional approaches of going back into the streets and protesting and bringing people together with their placards is extremely powerful. Um, the ability to you know speak to live audiences or to do more as we're doing in in, in results of COVID and the pandemic to do much more online webinar type approaches to things which can also be very powerful including you know the podcast that you're doing and I do with Off the Leash and other things yeah. as well so everything changes and you have to look at every way that you can communicate um, but in my view you know campaigning evolves but there are traditional things that can still be very very effective the petitions to government the sort of you know protest campaigns but also more sophisticated online social media digital media driven type campaigning activity but ultimately what you've got to do is you've got to be able to connect with people and harness their support and then drive that to bring about economic or political change and if you lose sight of that you you won't be able to really make progress in the areas mm-hmm. that i work in
0: yeah i mean social media has just been a, a game changer for advocacy and uh, as a grassroots campaign and you can now reach the the people the global reach that only a global ngo could have done at one point
1: which, and, it, which, and it can be a sea change, you know, if it, we've got a documentary on Channel 4 coming out on the 28th of August um, about the Nauzad evacuation that I was involved with last mm-hmm. year here in the UK, of my friend Pen Farving and his animals and people out of Afghanistan, which became a massive global story. Yeah. And knocked this government sideways and caused a huge political scandal. And it'll be one of the things that is contributing to Mr. Johnson and his gradual downfall from office that we see playing out in in London tonight as well, um, which is all about trust and integrity and honesty about what he does and doesn't do as Prime Minister. But my social media in that period of time, that will be very much focused on within the documentary, reached over 80 million people in those two weeks. That's the scale of it. And they were. You know, doing two minute monologue videos that I did as a diary every day of what was going on in this big campaign to get an airplane on the ground, get everyone out and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the more traditional sort of tweeting approach to government ministers and messaging going out and then sort of television interviews and we sharing clips of. So what we found is actually social media was leading the traditional media. Mm-hmm. Uh, And then it became, you know, a bit of a battle of wills between me and the defense secretary, which then went into the media studios, which then brought millions more people into it. And it exploded into this big sort of debate (laughs) between certain parts of government, including the prime minister that really wanted to get the dogs and people out of Afghanistan and and others within the ministry of defense and the defense secretary that believed that this was a great misuse of resources and and, and we got it all wrong and they shouldn't leave. Um, But ultimately, you know, we did get them out, but social media played a key role in it. And... um, Ultimately, also that led to change in another area. When we had the war in in Ukraine break out, I went back on the dogs and cats issue about refugees being able to come into Britain with their pets, and again we got huge, huge interest in that very quickly. Lots of media coverage, interviews, and we put real pressure on the government to change their policy of allowing refugees to bring animals in and to reduce quarantine times down and to fund all the costs of microchips and rabies and everything else, which has allowed now thousands of refugees from Ukraine to come with their dogs and cats, which Mm -hmm. to me was terribly important. Both of those campaigns were very focused on social media, very focused on public anger and concern in 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 an extreme period of tension on the international stage. And both of them forced the government to do things that would usually take an awful long time to make decisions extremely quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, and that i think is the power of a social media driven campaign particularly when you connect people with animals that can be extremely powerful which is one thing i have learned over the last 12 months in particular
0: 80 million people that's that's a crazy reach isn't it that to be able to reach 80 million people
1: and it's It's scary we couldn't switch it off you know so i was a sort of week into this and i didn't realize how big it had come until you know i was putting out two minutes of piece and uh, one in the morning from my kitchen about mm. a dispute I was having with the defense secretary trying to get a plane into Kabul mm. and it sort of it went to half a million people within wow. about 10 minutes <laughs> which is just astounding it you is, know the numbers of people that were locking on and sharing it and, <laughs> and responding to it yeah. and then when we were telling people to hit government with with tweets and that their whole sort of twitter system was just being jammed up <laughs> so nothing else could get through
0: yes yeah, I mean it's a great um, way for them to, you know to make them take notice uh, it been, did take notice, really it did cause
1: them. controversy because when the Foreign Affairs Select Committee here in Britain looked at this whole process of the withdrawal, which was disastrous, to be quite frank, on so many levels from government policy perspective, and so many people were left behind, they weren't saying we did the wrong thing. They actually said the charity and myself and others that campaigned to get that the, the NAWZ animals and people did what we said we were going to do, mm. and we had every right to throw the kitchen sink at it. But they said the government reacted wrongly because they allowed this social media driven campaign that became very emotionally connected to these dogs and cats, as well as the people to drive a priority over so many other people that desperately needed to get out and actually should have had a higher priority. So there were some very serious issues that have come out of that debate which actually, you know, people's lives are at risk. So these were extremely serious yeah. issues, as absolutely. you can appreciate. Yeah. But all absolutely. we were doing at the time was just trying to campaign for the group of people and animals that we were seeking to remove from that country. And to be quite frank, we're not really aware of the desperate situation that so many other people are in, mm. that ultimately many of which were left behind, which was, was, is desperate, yeah. absolutely desperate.
0: Yeah. Just going back to social media, we, I know you're on, you're on Instagram, Twitter and oh. Facebook Uh, which one of these do you think is the most effective? They've all got their pros and cons, but do you have one that particularly grabs attention or
1: is it? Well, Twitter definitely, you know, in terms of what we did on the NowSat operation and and as a daily dip tool, it's very useful. But it is diminishing, I think, in in its strength. I'm not certain over the last few months that numbers of followers that people can connect to their accounts is slowing. Um, My reach is still very big. Uh, and it goes up and down. So yeah. on an average month on Twitter, if I look at my analytics, I might reach, you know, 10 million people or yeah. 5 million. It's still a lot. Yeah. It's not the sort of 80 million we were hitting right. in August with right. with the Dow's thing, but it's still significant numbers of people. Yeah. But it is, I think, becoming less powerful to a degree than it was Um, and and it might well be because some people are drifting away and using other channels Um, Mm. you know i've tried tiktok recently which is interesting you know because i do a lot of sort of monologue two minute pieces you know to video which are quite powerful and very useful tool for what i do and actually they're working well on tiktok i did one recently on uh, horse racing Right. about royal ascot and racing horses in in the in the heat and it tens of thousands of people shared that really quickly so I, I was quite astounded by how fast that can move and that's a new area that i'm looking at now thinking actually we can do more with that right. instagram is is nice and solid but it's more image based it yeah. can work and um Facebook is, you know, some people say Facebook is dead. It's an old medium. I still find it very useful to connect down and to share stuff through. Mm. And it can surprise you with how far that reach can go. But again, you know, to a degree that can be more diminishing and, and, and controlled than it was in the past. I think it's it's a combination of all of these things, really, that can make yeah, a difference. Absolutely. I don't think any is one can be replaced for the other. And new technologies will come along all the time that we need to look at as well. Yeah.
0: I mean, you, you get different demographics, in in on different social media platforms as well so you're able to reach different people who are using different social media platforms
1: yeah and one thing i find is that the media come to me about social media you know if i want to get a news story out there i can put something out on a tweet and i know a journalist and i know then it could turn into a news story very quickly you've also got to be extremely careful about what you say yeah um, not only can you easily slander someone and get in trouble like that, but you can also mislead or you can make you know, statements which are yeah. clearly, mm. you know, can be seen as aggressive or whatever it might be. So you, you learn about how to communicate and your tone of communication. But yes, it, it's an extremely powerful tool. You know, when Nasad became a very controversial issue, when, you know, we had a situation where I was saying that, you know, the prime minister had intervened to help us get people and animals out of Afghanistan, and he was publicly saying he didn't it led to this sort of ongoing thing in social media where I would share some information the journalists would look at it and then it would end up on the BBC. And then what it led to was that civil servants in the Foreign Office started to leak that actually I was right in what I was saying. And here's some more evidence that the Prime Minister did tell us this is what he wanted. Then it led to a Foreign Affairs Select Committee hearing, which is, you know, more in-depth discussion with members of Parliament, looking at it and bringing ministers forward to give evidence. So I was sort of playing a key role in all of this just by being present Mm. in that social media environment. Journalists knew they could connect with me, they could ask me for something. And at times, yeah, you can drop something in very quickly and speedily into a process and it can have an impact, you know, and lead to a front page story in a very short period of time, a headline news. I've been in those media scrums. Sometimes it, it's not as comfortable as it, is. it might seem, but, you know, it's, it's quite stressful. But if, you, if you're going to try and control a story or drive something, social media offers you an ability to do that in a way, if you weren't present in that medium, it, it would be very difficult to achieve.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating that somebody making a tweet can actually now make headline news. It's it's, it's kind of changing ways. And often
1: when I tweet, that does become part of the story. And journalists don't necessarily ask me. They just report it as my comment or my view. So you've got to be careful about what you say Mm or do because it can end up just being printed in a newspaper. That happens to me quite a lot nowadays, to be
0: honest. Uh, Slander and so on. I, I think that's something that a lot of people probably don't think about very often, Um, But it's it's a very real fact of life that by tweeting something, you you can actually be liable for that comment.
1: You can. And I think you learn, you know, I'm very cautious not to draw individuals into discussions Mm. unless I had good reason to do so. I can make a claim about a country or a broad policy. But, you know, actually sharing images can be very difficult as well. And I spoke about this at London University recently, particularly with regards to Faroe Islands. You know, I'm campaigning to stop the killing of whales and dolphins in the Faroes. We have a debate in Parliament next Monday after 100,000 people signed a petition that I put together calling for trade sanctions. The imaging we get back from the Faroes is absolutely horrendous. Yeah. You know, you're driving in whales and dolphins and butchering them in the most disgusting, barbaric way. Social media's view on this is, is quite interesting. The policy of the social media companies, particularly Twitter and Facebook, is that if you share those images as a campaigner like me, they consider it gratuitous gore and violence, and they can restrict your account as a result. And they have done to me at certain times, and I know others have seen similar problems. <clears throat> if you're a hunter and you're involved in the killing, and it's legal, then they will allow you to share those images as yeah. being a hunter. Mm. So they can share them, but you can't. So the it's people kind of a doing it standard. can share them, But the people opposing it can't that's ludicrous in my view but that's the rules that they set and it means that in some areas of our work um, and this is something that has become more and more difficult over the years graphic images have to be toned down or you have to find other ways of communicating the violence without sharing the, the, the true nature of it which means you have to be a little bit more sophisticated maybe in how you communicate things um, but it can be done, but it is a bit more of a challenge.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a difficult one to know how to approach it because if you're overly graphic with the images, people may just scroll past. Don't want to see that. Move on. um So I guess you have to pitch it at the correct level.
1: It is hard because you know, ultimately, if you see the image, it drives the anger to bring about change. Mm. It could be killing dolphins in, in 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 a bay in 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 the Faroe Islands, or it could be the horrible situation with the killing of cats and dogs in Yulin festival in China, for example, you, you, you they are horrendous. And, and s- somehow you have to communicate the brutality and the cruelty to try and bring about change, yeah. but you're right. It, 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 but also it can be quite traumatic for the people viewing these things. Um, and that's not particularly pleasant. If people just keep seeing it scrolling up on their social media mm-hmm. feeds as well, It can switch them off and it can, it can lead to that. So it is a balance to be reached. It is a balance.
0: Do you have a social media plan or do you have a more dynamic approach of of what comes up each day or have you, you know, a lot of
1: social media
0: experts have their next Mm. three months planned out? I, imagine- I, work
1: with, I work with organizations that have all of that strategy and they have to struggle with me where my bits fits into <laughs> their strategy. So for example, if born free, you know, knows I'm working on a campaign, they'll have to fit whatever I'm doing around the campaign. I'm working on into their strategy. So that that's fine. But I also value the independence I have of my own voice where I can just go yeah. and do my own thing beyond it. Um, so I fully understand the need for NGOs to have a more rigorous strategic yeah. focused approach, but also there's a real value in having someone like me connected to NGOs who can act independently and be a strong independent voice as well, because they can push the barriers to debate and discussion. They can do things that maybe the NGO can't do, but that supports the NGO in a broader sense. I can go into political territory, for example, that they can't go into uh, engage with politicians in a way that they might not be able to do so publicly and things like that. So I, I think there's a combination of the two, but yeah, I think, it's difficult for NGOs. And I'll be honest with you, I think lots of NGOs are increasingly failing on social media because they're becoming much more focused on marketing, yeah. you know, and branding. Mm-hmm. And what they're losing is the edge.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and most of what they're putting out is not necessarily that interesting and then you can see that the levels of engagement with their social media is dropping and the people that have the sort of strong social media presence tend to be independent campaigners or writers who can be pushy and provocative and controversial at times and can hold an audience by doing that so it it is quite tricky Um, but there are differences in approaches you know uh, if you're an NGO you have to think legally you have to think about you know liable political issues all the things you you know have to go on all the time and, and, and they have to be considered as an individual you can you know these comments to my own and you think about your own actions and you can you know reflect it there so in my view i sort of play a combination of two roles feeding into ngos that have developed the messaging as they feel appropriate which is terribly powerful so for example born free this week has put out a briefing i've written for them to go to mps ahead of the debate on the 11th of july which i've written and is tailored and is focused and, and having the born free platform to do that and c shepherd have been working on something similar goes out tomorrow so the mps will get this through the ngo route mm-hmm. They'll see it and they'll go into the a parliamentary debate with the the key information that I think we need. That adds to anything that I can do as an individual. And it gives it more status and credibility for MPs um, in terms of what they're going to use. So I think that there are there are roles for both strong independent voices and NGOs to be effective in that social media environment.
0: Yeah, I think, like I said earlier, I think, you know, the social media has really um, put a, a good deal of persuasion in the hands of the grassroots campaigner. And, and now you've got a better approach from the ngos that the, the ngos still have their place and they still have their purpose but now you've got a, a mass of grassroots campaigners that can use twitter facebook instagram and tiktok which i've actually never used to try and spread word about animal welfare issues it can however be very time consuming do you ever set boundaries on how long you spend on social media a day or
1: it's difficult, and there are times when I think this takes over my life, to be yeah. quite frank. And I'm involved with different organisations, animal welfare charities, mm-hmm. looking at dogs, wildlife protection charities, you know, just doing different things. I sit on a board of one or two organisations. I do my own podcasts and write articles, and you know, just respond to general requests. To, to, yeah. As a, I'm, I'm often seen in the media just as a person to come to because they've got an animal issue. You know, yeah. got, it could be anything. Let's <laughs> Talk bring up Dominic, 10 minutes nose, and we come on and speak about muscling cats. as I mean, the other day when I was <laughs> boiling an egg you know some peer of the realm had decided that he thought cats should be muzzled because they kill wild birds you know yeah. we'll have a debate about that one so that's the sort of thing i often get asked <laughs> to, to comment on i turned down quite a few some i will do them if i feel i can add something to the discussion um but it just depends on, on what the request yeah. might be so yes yeah, so it, it is quite challenging but ultimately i know i couldn't have done my job that i've done over the last 10 years and I, you know i've had this debate with twitter we talked about the restrictions on the Faroe islands you know i had to go up this the, the corporate ladder a friend of mine opened a door to someone to talk so, oh, okay
0: so you actually and i said i context. said
1: listen i've got a problem here i said you're restricted my account because of what i'm putting out in the fair islands and i said i'm working with channel four about a documentary on nowsad on and the basis of that documentary will be that this was the most powerful social media campaign ever to influence a government policy during a a crisis like we saw in Afghanistan. And this was the point I made, which I think was very strong to them. I said, I would not have been able to get those people and animals out of Afghanistan unless I was able to use my social media platform, i.e. my Twitter feed, to share and to influence this discussion in that two-week period. But because you've restricted my account now, I wouldn't have been able to get them out. Because what you've done to my account now means that basically I can't reach a tiny percentage of those people because you get a notice that this could have, you know, images that are blah, blah, blah yeah, on your account. Then yeah. mm. people just switch off and don't engage. And they also basically stop you from getting picked up by other people on the account. It did rec- They recognize that very quick and they lifted the restrictions. But I didn't think they wanted me to go and do the interview, you know, to, to give Twitter a bad reputation. Yeah, okay, on the, on but on the document. point was made, I think, that listen, yeah. you know, you put in these restrictions, you stop people being able to reach those audiences. And in, in, in the case of what I was doing there, that lives could have depended on it. So it is what it is. But yeah, so, you know, Uh, the relationship you have with these social media organizations can be difficult. It's a bit like the blue um, tick business with Twitter. I can't get a blue tick for some reason. (laughs) I keep showing, I've given them all the the, the stuff they need, but I know that there are people in the background that have complained about some of my work and it just probably Mm. red flags it all the time. I'll get to the bottom of that. It's not so crucial to me. It's almost a joke But quite a lot of the people that don't like my work keep going on. Dominic's not got a blue tick. This will go on forever. Now it's one of those things, but I do think that's a problem because, you know, they have mechanisms for approval people and and there are red flags that come up all the time depending on the sort of controversies that you're involved with in that sense
0: yeah absolutely and it's it's one of my issues with social media is that you can spend a long time years even building up a good following um, and good engagement with people but essentially you've got to remember that you're in the hands of a private company yes and they can make decisions any day that may affect all that work that you've put into developing your your voice on social media
1: that's quite a scary thought, really. But you're right; you're absolutely right. And their argument: where well, you've not had to pay for any of this, mm-hmm. but you've invested your life in this yep. to a degree. Yep. You know, your profession and a lot of things can be involved with it. Your ability to earn money and be influential. Mm. So you're right; you are right. You know, so if Twitter or all my social media platforms are switched off tomorrow, yep. I would be in a bit of a panic. Think, my God, you know, I'd get I'd get over it, and maybe I'd be a little less stressed at times. <laughs> but you know, to me, it's 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 been an important part of my life for a decade, yeah. and and I have become. You know, in the corporate world, I didn't use this stuff at all. Um, I just, I had a presence in a, in a bubble of the corporate world I was known in and I did what I needed to do. But my presence now is far bigger as yeah. a result of what yeah. social media's allowed me to have. And uh, that does come at a cost, but it's open windows and doors that I would never have been able to get through otherwise, to be quite frank. So I feel very fortunate to be able to have that voice and use it.
0: Yeah, I mean, a, a point that's slightly off topic, but... Um, the case in Australia where the Australian government wanted Facebook to start paying for news from Australian news providers. Right. One morning, everybody woke up and every single government Facebook page and news outlet had been shut down by Facebook. Right. So I think it's important, you know, to just remember that you are in the hands of, of somebody else. And it's one of the reasons why we've started to, to develop A radio, because we're not dependent on Facebook, Twitter, or anybody else. So we can still use them to put the word out there, but we've still got our independent platform just in case Twitter's sold tomorrow and it no longer
1: exists. It's a very good point. I, you know, I, I found podcasting has been a bit of a liberating area too, because it allows you like this to go into a depth that you just can't do in normal media yeah. channels. A lot of the interviews I will do will be two, three, four, five minutes. You know, you, you get what you can. I'm a good speaker and I can get a lot across in that period of time. But you don't get the opportunity to do the in-depth yeah. stuff that podcasts allows. And that's why the off the leash podcast we've been doing over the last year. Yeah have been so important to sort of get to grips with some of these big complex issues that I deal with on the Animal Welfare Wildlife Protection Front all the time.
0: Yeah, now you mentioned that um, you get contact from mainstream media um, because you sent (coughs) out a tweet. It's another great way of raising awareness of the issue that I I want to change. Do you have any hints and tips on approaching journalists or how to get them to be interested in what you have to say? How do you make the news?
1: You have to be controversial to a degree, and that's not everyone's cup of tea. And you have to be, you know, I'm I'm seen as a good spokesperson to get on at short notice and, and can be eloquent and speak with clarity, mm-hmm. which, you know, be a, a television or audio environment is, is what the media needs in the 24-hour media cycle where you need to constantly do things. I think also, you know, I'm quite stubborn and I'll stick to, to an issue. And I think, you know, journalists at, at the end of the day, that they're, they're trying to look for stories and they're trying to see things through. Um, and you need to be credible. I think the Nauzad thing was one of you know, i had a significant amount of coverage on badgers. We had this crazy story in the summer about an alpaca called Geronimo. Mm-hmm. That became a massive story that I was involved mm-hmm. with. They got coverage all over the world. And then the Nauzad thing came in right at the end of that. So that you had this mad summer in August where my sort of media exposure massively increased beyond what people knew me as as a wildlife campaign. And suddenly I got more involved in those sort of political humanitarian debates and how government worked. I was known as a friend of the Prime Minister's wife. I'd campaigned with her before she became his partner, and I'd worked with her when she had become his partner in 2019. And there were various controversies about me trying to influence her to try and influence the Prime Minister. But there was a general view that the Johnson administration had a number of people forcing pace of change on the environment and animal welfare. She was one of those. I was one of those. That Goldsmith, the minister, was one of those. And the media wrote about that a lot. And they would come to me to talk about this relationship regularly at different times, you know, what was happening, who was up, who was down. Yeah. Um, and now, sad things sort of ran a court and court and sorry, coaching horses through that to a degree. Um, because suddenly, again, that the sort of issue about my relationship with the prime minister's wife had that influenced him to take decisions to evacuate animals and people above other priorities in that very difficult few weeks at the end of August. Um, As I said earlier, we were sort of cleared from the Foreign Affairs Select Committee about what we did as a charity and the campaigners. I was one of the campaigners working for it. But I I do think that sort of constantly has has fascinated the media (laughs) about that political relationship and about how I have sort of uh, the Spectator magazine, for example, put it on its front page at the beginning of September. They did a whole interview with me for their TV channel Mm. um, about they said animals had taken over politics in Britain. And they said it had gone a bit insane <laughs> that, you know, and people like me were behind it because we'd pushed this agenda right up to, to, the, to the cabinet and the prime minister level. And it started to take up a higher priority than it should. My argument was that we were always connecting with what people thought about and considered important. I was just galvanizing public opinion, and driving it forward. Mm. And this was cutting across all political points of view. And, I, and I've just been part of a, a a whole group of people that have been doing that. Uh, I've just been maybe more visible politically than some others have. And I think journalists have then sort of, they know who to come to. And, and to be quite honest, I've given them good stories. And, yeah. you know, those stories have generated some big significant political events and played out in, a, in an arena. Yeah. So, you know, they come back to you. You're thinking about different things all the time. You know, at the moment, I'm talking with a, a diplomatic editor of The Times about her experiences in Ukraine and about adopting a dog there in Donbass and, and, and reporting in Boucher of, of war crimes and, and the animals and all the human-animal stories that she's bringing back. And we're working on an event in the City of London for her to, to speak about her experiences to raise money for a project we're actually funding in, in Poland for Ukrainian refugees to protect their animals. But that's the sort of thing I like to do. So those journalist contacts come two ways. Quite a lot of them want to work with me. Mm-hmm. And in fact, quite a lot of the journalists that were quite critical of what we were doing in the summer when it came to Nowsad, went on to become defence correspondents working in Ukraine, And they found themselves in situations where they were adopting dogs on the street because it was a a very difficult thing for them to report on what was happening there. And the dogs brought great comfort. And, you know, they were contacting me, Dominic, can you help me? What do I need to do to get this dog out of here? (laughs) So suddenly that relationship sort of turned around and I said, weren't you critical of what I was doing, lifting dogs out of Afghanistan? (laughs) Yeah. But you know, I've got to take this dog out of here. You know, I've had it in my hotel room for a week and it's incredibly important to me. Mm -hmm. And I I said, I know it is. And that's what this was all about in the summer. Now you probably understand a little bit what we were trying to do, but of course I'm going to help you. So you can see how those, Sort of relationships built in that so i have some good relationships with journalists i like talking with them i like working with them i like to see stories develop and i know they're under a lot of pressure so they've got to be constantly monitoring social media too looking at how stories develop and people come to me all the time saying dominic can you get this story into the press and i have some good experience of doing that it's never easy but you know i'm, I'm quite good at getting stories picked up or getting coverage if i really know who to talk to
0: yeah, it's interesting because it's a, it's very much a changing landscape for the mainstream media, the newspapers, because they are competing with social media yes. because people are getting their news from the, Twitter. And, you know, the, the place that the newspapers go to get their some of their news is social media. It
1: is, and, and they snip it up as well. What I found if you do an interview, for example, on a rolling mm. news channel, you might only have, you know, 20,000 people might view it when it goes out. But mm. if you snip it up and put it on social media, the audience will be much bigger, yeah. and 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 that's what we found during the whole nowsad thing. So every time I did an interview, we snipped it up and just put it back on social media. So it just grew, mm-hmm. and then the, the channels that were struggling for it for viewers suddenly came back to me saying, "Well, let's get him back on again." Because look, we're seeing loads of hits on our social media because that interview mm-hmm. just done with it. So it sort of fed it itself off, really, in that sense. So, so I do think all of it does interconnect now. Yeah.
0: So for you, it's um, you know the journalists are coming to you because of your popularity as a as a less well-known advocate. Do you have any any kind of hints and tips to, to, to try and engage with the press or the media, try to get them attention for your story?
1: I think it's the angle you take. You know, don't just send them a press release and just say, please, can you cover this? It's, it, it doesn't tend to work. I think you have to have an angle to your story. Is there a particular issue that's going to interest them and it's going to fit into whatever they're looking at on on the day? Um, And, and you know, it could be about dogs. It could be about, you know, lions or badgers or whatever it might be. It could be a local issue where you're trying to take action. It could be an international issue. Um, Some people get very disappointed because they think every march or process or event that they cover should be given, you know, prime media coverage. It's just not going to happen like that. And often what you find is that the media come back and forth on stories. You know what was a big story today it's not so much interest tomorrow and they move on to something else there are some stories that go on and on like now as did because it became an ongoing political scandal around a prime minister who was struggling around many other issues so it was never going to go away but that's quite unique and that's why it's being made into a documentary <laughs> that doesn't often happen and i think it'll probably end up being a film as well but you know that's just one of those things that blew in a way that even i didn't really expect it to but a lot of the other stories we're dealing with come and go you know like you know i was talking for example this weekend about seven years since the killing of cecil the lion in hawaiian yeah. national park in zimbabwe if i went back to that story when it was broke it was incredible you know most of the team in born Free were in a conference in vancouver that i was due to go to that i hadn't gone out to so i sat in the office in, in horsham in sussex where i got this call from the daily telegraph saying that we've got this story about this american dentist who's killed this lion in africa and would like to run it front page tomorrow we want an interview with you which i did and then Sky News contacted me. I did an interview for them. And then BBC said, will you come up to Salford in the northwest of England because we want you on our main BBC breakfast show in the morning, which I did. Got up there late at night, sort of went to bed got to their offices at six in the morning to do the breakfast news and looked on all the front pages of the newspapers in front of me and they all had Cecil the Lion mm. on the page and all the news around the world was covering it. and then I just did back to back interviews on all the news channels reaching millions of people. At yeah. the end of the day Cecil the Lion was on the side of the Empire State Building, you know, yeah. being projected, you know, Barack Obama was being asked about it, Angela Merkel, David Cameron, all world leaders. So. And that's just, I think, because it was, a, it was a day when there wasn't much news around, which seems very strange now, yeah. <laughs> doesn't it? It was before Donald Trump, before Brexit, before yeah. the war in Ukraine, before COVID, before everything that sent our world mad. <laughs> it was a slow news day. We don't seem to have many of those anymore. No, not anymore. And I can't imagine Cess of the Lion being such a big story now, if yeah. it emerged, not in the world that we're now in. So yeah. it's a, it would maybe be a story of its time in a period where suddenly, bang, everyone got hold of it. But God knows that was a roller coaster story mm. to do. And it did go on went on for quite some time um, but seven years later we're still fighting the battle about trophy hunting mm-hmm. but we come back to it You know, it's, it's not the same in the scale and interest but you, you a new generation almost has to be brought back into it now the younger people yeah, think what absolutely. happened to this line seven years ago why is it still relevant yeah but I've got longevity as well, <laughs> so when people dispute what I say, I could say, "Listen, I was saying this seven years ago. I'm still saying it now. I think having longevity in this game helps. Mm, absolutely, people is. can't look at me and see my flash in the pan. They think yeah. this guy's been doing this for a long time, yeah. it's and actually not it's sure been campaigning game, and speaking and, and talking, you know, mm. with authority and, and knowledge and, and and passion on these issues for a long, long time. And even if yeah. you don't disagree with him, you can't ignore it yeah. in that sense."
0: I think that's an important thing to remember that you bring up is that, you know, a lot of these campaigns, they're long-term efforts. They're not something you, you, change is a slow process. You can't change things overnight.
1: Unless, as, as I said earlier, you had a crisis like yeah. you had in Afghanistan Absolutely. where everything just suddenly yeah. changed in weeks, which, yeah. you know, but that, they're rare occurrences yeah. in these things. Yeah. Mostly it takes years of hard yeah. graft yeah. to try and bring about change, which is often never quite what you want it to be, but mm-hmm. you know, it is what it is.
0: Yep. Now, paper-based petitions used to be one of the key ways to provide evidence that decision-makers had – there was a growing public opinion of an issue. Hmm. And, of course, now it's all electronic petitions, which presumably has a far broader reach and uh, presumably, therefore, more impact. And you've got the the two types of petitions, the official-type petition with the the Parliament on the gov.uk website. Um, which obviously makes the government aware of an issue. And let's say it encourages them to talk about it if you get over 100,000 signatures. But yes. they're not obliged to talk about it. it. They just will consider to talk about it. And then, of course, you've got the change.org type petitions. How effective do you think petitioning is um, in, in bringing about real change?
1: I think petitions can be helpful in engaging people and, and, and driving awareness. And the media feed off petitions quite a lot to give a sort of you know a benchmark on where public opinion is. The government petitions have been useful in Britain because they are allowed to trigger a debate in the House of Commons. And you're right, you know, they don't have to trigger a debate. In most cases, they do, not in all. And those debates can be very useful for bringing public attention back to issues. In some cases, they can bring about change as well. Mm. Um, so, you know, you need a means by which you can get politicians to sit up and look at something. So I think, you know, I find the government petitions, you know, for example, what we, we've got two being debated on Monday that I've been heavily engaged with. One is on bare fur hats, you know, from... Canadian black bears killed for the British army. Yep. And the other one is on, on trade sanctions against the pharaohs on the whale and dolphin slaughter. Both of those campaigns needed those petitions to get them back to public attention, to build up yep. political public interest. And I think the debates in the House of Commons on Monday won't fundamentally change either of them, but it will help to put pressure and draw attention to why it is that people feel so strongly on those issues.
0: Yeah, I wonder how much politicians actually take notice of the petitions because it's become so easy to sign them. It's, it's almost a case of being slacktivism. Um, you know, there's, there's people that will sign them but are, are not really willing or interested in taking any further action on the issue
1: tend to agree with the care two and others you know the ones yeah. you can just do globally Change.org but the, the government petitions you have yeah. to sign twice you have to give your address details and they break <laughs> it down by region yep. it's a bit of a chore and actually getting one of those over a hundred thousand takes an awful lot of yes. work
0: yeah I've
1: noticed. you know six months seems a long time most of them you only get to hundred thousand when you're getting very close to that deadline and often you have to bring in high profile figures and drive mm. it and constantly drive it mm. so both the bear one and the uh, the Thera's were both hard work to get over 100 we did it many of them don't get to 100 it was very 000, it was
0: quite close each. to the line wasn't it i think the um, yes sir. the uh, grinned one was it was it was
1: yeah exactly and you, then you have to sort of re-establish interest in it drive yeah. it forward again and and when you've got lots of other things going on, as i do it's sometimes yeah, difficult yeah. And you think how much do you push it out there but we did it and we got good people behind it you know chris packham well-known naturalist in mm-hmm. britain deborah mead and a well-known business yeah. person ricky gervais and other people did get behind it so i think and, and the same on 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 the bear one we've had some really well-known high-profile people but i think ultimately you've got to engage it is a useful way of doing it um it's not perfect but it's it's just one of the tools that you can use you know protests are are very important and they don't have to be large in number you know the 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 whole issue around the killing of geronimo the alpaca blew into a massive story and i remember we did a, a, a protest event from defra's offices in Smith Square in london to downing street and it was organized at a very short notice, you know, at the tail end of the summer pandemic of 2021, when people just weren't venturing out much anyway. And we got about 30 people with their placards and we got about 30 journalists, which is incredible. Oh, yeah. We got more journalists and protesters and there were journalists from every major newspaper and news outlet you could think of <laughs> in Britain and around the world, all covering this story. So it was huge. So yeah. everyone wanted to have a bit of the, you know, the Geronimo story. So the fact that we were walking to Downing Street with our placards saying, save this little black alpaca. Mm. And it was being raised in cabinet, you know, and it was becoming an issue in all the debates and the media and front page coverage was, was very, very powerful. So it's not about numbers. The other thing I, I recall, you know, if you look back at the Brexit debate in Britain, we had massive rallies in central London, hundreds of hundreds of thousands of people, half a million plus people on a number of them. Big, big protests we've ever seen in Britain. They got coverage, but not massive. I can tell you the one that got the biggest coverage. We did a campaign called Wooferendum where we basically brought dog owners on the streets of London against Brexit because we were worried about vets fees going up, shortage of vets, you know, losing the pet passport. All the th- things actually happened, to be quite yeah. frank. <laughs> and we did leave the European Union. Um, we had 1,000 dogs we brought and their owners, and we marched them through London from Pallmouth, Trafalgar Square down to a stage with various speakers and stuff the media coverage was absolutely incredible. We did it on a beautiful summer uh, autumn day in October, and the media were all over it. Every journalist from every news broadcaster in the world wanted to take a picture of all these dogs marching through central London and video footage. And it was absolutely everywhere. So if you look at referendum and you just sort of Google it, you'll see lots of video footage and newspaper articles, front page and everything in Britain, New York, all over the place. Um, and it was because of the dogs. The dogs were yeah. just the story. They loved it, absolutely loved it. So. <laughs> There you go it's animals again, isn't it? well, that's right it's it's kind of
0: easy to get people's attention, especially around dogs isn't it? who does it is love dogs dog, right? you
1: never fail with dogs, which is why they became out such a big story about the Ukraine war as well mm-hmm. because when the refugees were taking them out and all those images, it just dominated the media to the point where the Ukrainian government realized it was their strongest p r tool to be quite frank, yeah. the love of animals in the country, and they've continued to use that as the war's gone on
0: now you mentioned um, demonstrations briefly then. Mm -hmm. Um, and it used to presumably be quite hard to organise a demonstration uh, pre-social media days. But in in your experience, and I I think you probably just answered this question, but do you think demonstrations gather much support for a cause or do you think they alienate people? And the reason that I ask that question is because in a previous broadcast, we looked at a study, and it was about a slightly different topic. It was more diet-related. Yes. But they said, um, they found that Protests tended to alienate people more than it did gather support.
1: I think it depends. You know, if I went back to the badger call issue, we, we, we took that to every major town and city in Britain. We organised over 50 separate campaign marches in a three-year period. Brighton, Birmingham, Leeds, London, Stratford-upon-Avon, all over the place, towns and cities. Often 500,000 plus people in a small town would get far more interest than tens of thousands in yeah. the capital. The local media were all over it, local radio, television, the local MP would be involved. This campaign was so successful by the time we sort of got, you know, 30 plus marches organised and we were doing it literally every second weekend, that it became the fifth largest issue of concern to MPs in 2015. national issue was the Badger Cup and it brought down the Environment Secretary in Patterson effectively for handling it. So that showed me that actually campaigning can be very, very powerful and very useful. It depends on how targeted it is, the sort of communities you're going into, who you're trying to reach, how you're working with local media to build your story. The Badger Call was perfect for that because it was a national policy being rolled out to different parts of the country. Mm -hmm. You could go to different areas and bring it to people's attention, draw attention to the cruelty and the cost and all the rest of it. Um, We, to a degree, by doing that in the early stages of social media, so that allowed us to start organizing and sharing it all on video and stuff. Um, We restarted, I would say, with the Badger Cold Marches, an engagement on wildlife protection through direct campaigning and protest in this country that we hadn't seen for many decades. So out of the back of that came, you know, lots more events that I got involved with on whales and dolphins and lions and elephants. And then you started to see Extinction Rebellion and other organisations begin to harness their model around some of this at a national level. And I think we've seen a, a return, as it were, to street protests, particularly for environment, wildlife issues. It has tapered off during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because people have just gone through, as we know hell to be quite frank, around the world. But they're really beginning to emerge from it now. And so coming together in large crowds still is quite unnerving to many people. So the numbers have not been the same. But I do think it will return. I think we'll see a new generation of people getting involved. You know, I'm of a certain age and, and I want to see more young people come back. You know, and sometimes they can be critically important. You know, in 2019, we put we took 10,000 people to the gates of Downing Street to protest against fox hunting. Yeah. In a campaign that was dull as dishwater when Theresa May was looking like she was just going to increase her majority, which is what she wanted to do is try and negotiate a difficult EU exit agreement. And the campaign suddenly came alive because she said in, in the campaign that she was sympathetic to repealing the, the anti-hunting ban. So we we got the biggest protest of the election campaign. We had coverage in all the British newspapers, the American and international media, and it knocked her sideways. And on the polling day, she lost seats because of it. People basically went to the polls, and, and she lost in places like Kensington, Chelsea, Stroud, yeah. uh, Canterbury. She lost a majority when. They looked at all the figures and the factors behind it. It was widely accepted within the media, but also the Conservative Party itself. The fox hunting was a a red-hot issue on the doorstep that drove voters away, particularly younger voters from the party. She realised what she'd done. But we had made it that issue. We'd forced it into the campaign, and we'd really drawn attention to it at a critical time. So I always give that as an example of how you can have a critical influence on an outcome of an election Mm. if an issue like that becomes part of public debate. Mm.
0: And I see you quite a lot. You're you're one of the key speakers at these public events. Um, I see your videos on Twitter. Is that is public speaking? Is that something that just comes naturally to you? Or is it something that you had to work to be good at?
1: I used to do a lot of corporate presentations in industry where you'd tend to do them in hotels around the world, you know, with PowerPoint slides to, to audiences. Um, and I enjoyed that. I was good at it. But it wasn't as exciting of going on the street with a bullhorn. Um, I'd learned to do that actually at, at a later period in my life when I started to work in wildlife in my early 40s. I suppose I found it quite reinvigorating, yeah. really, you know, giving up the, the suits and the traveling yeah, yeah. and actually just Absolutely. getting out there with a T-shirt and a pair of shorts and standing on a bench with a micro- uh, microphone and, and blasting out. And I found it was quite powerful. So particularly in the early days of the Badger we got quite a lot of national media coverage of me just, you know, at these protests. And then I started to do others and we started to drive it. Yeah, I have a way of communicating. I enjoy it. I enjoy speaking to live audiences more than I do just presentations like the corporate world, which I could do, but I didn't find anything as exciting about it. Um, But, you know, it's that spontaneity that you get from talking to people and um, and sort of, you know, I've got a loud voice that can command a presence and carries. And, um, yeah, I've got a very good memory for things so I can speak without notes. And I can speak for 10, 15 minutes quite happily on anything off the top of my head to a degree that I feel passionate about. Um, So I suppose that's something that not everyone's got the skill set to do, but it it is important. And I often get asked to speak because of that. But there are some set piece things. When um, a friend of mine, um, a very successful city lawyer called Sam Hutchinson, um, recently set up a new foundation, Power of One, to help dog rescue charities around the world, harnessing you know, high salaries that she earns and her friends do in the city, which I thought was wonderful. And she said, will you come along and uh, speak at the launch event? And this big grand launch balls that she'd set up um, with Leona Lewis Singer and things coming along mm-hmm. and doing stuff, which was great. And I did, and it was all done at short notice, but, uh, you know, I just thought this is the opportunity to draw together a lot of what I was thinking about dogs from nows ad to the, the Ukraine situation, but also looking at other experiences in my life from going into American prisons where they brought dogs into to give to the prisoners to reduce violence and things, you know, so, so there's lots of things that I wanted to talk about. And I did on the stage for about 20, 25 minutes. And, and that was, was really good because I think it really hit the right note for that audience, which were a lot of city people, actually financial people, mm-hmm. you know, weren't necessarily animal people. But I think they, they could understand why I was telling them about the mental, physical health benefits of dogs and how that had affected my life and what I'd done and how the political campaigning and everything had led on the back of some of this and how everyone could connect in that room to it, which is why Sam had set up the foundation. So that type of speaking, that, and I'm also enjoying more chairing of events, you know, I'll be back at Bird Fair, a big global gathering for the environment movement down in Rutland Wildlife Reserve in a few weeks time running our sort of question time state you know, of debates that I often do where I bring, you know, well-known speakers and panelists together. Uh, so that in my view is, is, is just something else that I enjoy doing and just bringing people. So I don't always necessarily need to speak. I often like to, to, to bring opinion together. You know, I went to COP26 in Glasgow and did a bigger, you know, question time event there working yeah. with the cabinet office as well, with about 600 people in a live audience, bringing together really interesting speakers talking about all global environmental animal issues. So. I enjoy putting those events together and chairing it as much as leading or speaking. And I, I suppose I'm, I'm quite multifaceted. I can do the sort of diplomatic mm-hmm. business focus, political stuff. I can do the rabble rousing stuff outside. I can do the stuff in parliament. I can share the debates and I enjoy doing it all really.
0: Yeah. I think you touched on a very important point then is um, it's, it's your knowledge. If you if you have the knowledge of the subject that you're talking about, then you will be more confident in talking about it. So yes. the, the key yeah. is to educate yourself about the issue and, and the words will just come naturally, right?
1: Indeed, yeah, exactly. And, and you know, I was doing Lion March, you know, this weekend um, in in Birmingham, and I enjoyed doing that. The night before I was at Annabelle's in Mayfair with that to Tom Hardy and a few bankers talking about an animal project we're working on yeah. in a completely different setting, which, you know, they couldn't be too different to be quite honest. They really couldn't, and that's my life at the moment. And I'm fortunate to be able to do that, I suppose.
0: Yeah. You know. So we, we've spoken about the ways that we can. Um, we, we've got our issue, and we've spoken about the ways that we are raising awareness of the issue, and we are getting a collective of voice who who agree that the change is required. We then got to move on to produce some evidence of why the, the change should be made. Um, and you're obviously quite well connected, um, and probably you produce a lot of the evidence, maybe yourself. How can people educate themselves? And, and build their case
1: build a case you know it's like when I went to the Faroes and looked at it again the Faroe islands has been going on for hundreds of years but in my lifetime it's constantly come up how this small island nation kills whales and dolphins mm. what can we do to stop it all types of efforts have been made you know can we go in and direct campaign to stop it by putting people between the boats and the and the killers the whale killers well that's been tried can we try and you know educate the people on the islands to do whale watching rather than killing that's been tried can we sort of Threatened to boycott their tourism industry, and that's been tried. I thought to myself, well, what new can we bring to it? So I looked at the trade figures and I just saw that we had a massive growing trade arrangement between Britain and the Faroes since 2019. We left the EU, and it's gone from 100 million pounds when it was first negotiated to over 850 million pounds of trade from the Faroes to Britain now, which is incredible for an island race of 48,000 people. Um, and this is now one of the fastest growing economy island economies in the world, one of the richest island economies in the world, yet it is killing more marine mammals than anywhere else in the world at a time when we've enriched it greatly through our trade relationship. And that's why I thought, well, if we can focus on that, if I can look at that from a British angle, and have also been opening that debate in the United States as well. I think we could maybe bring about a change where we could force trade sanctions into the equation to force them to stop doing what they're doing. Mm. So I think a lot of the time it's trying to maybe bring a fresh perspective to it. You know, I've been having discussions with trophy hunting, opposing views because I, I oppose trophy hunting obviously i have yeah. a very strong ethical approach to it as Du born free the charity i work with but ultimately i think we need to find common ground between those people who advocate it as a necessary need for local communities mm-hmm. and environmental sustainable support in different areas of africa for example um, my view is that actually it's all about money and if yeah. you take the trophy hunting out what alternative revenue sources can you find and i've said that we need to debate that issue with the pro trophy hunting academics and draw them out and say we all ultimately want to get to the same th- point in this debate where actually this is not necessary in which case how do we put more money in is that government money private funding whatever it might be but we definitely need to be talking about that and who leads that is it african people themselves how do ngos yeah. fit in and all the rest of it so um it, often i'm trying to look at er- issues that are complex long-standing and try and bring a new approach to them yeah, and i think right. that's what i would say to people look at things afresh, so yeah. try and look at there's another angle that hasn't been considered bring it to public attention animal testing again you know we we see the level of animal testing in britain rise despite commitments from the government to reduce it and then do we look at certain species i don't think we should be using primates dogs for testing. i know we're not going to stop all animal testing overnight but i do think we can get the dogs out of the system i think we Mm -hmm. can get the primates out of the system and i think we should be doing that because i think most people would say that's not what they'd want to see and the cats as well the broader issues around the use of rice, mats, uh, you know, m- mice, rats, uh, fish, You know, to my view, I'd like to see it all in, but that's going to take more time. So it's almost like you're taking a species approach to it, but I do think that's something we should be looking at. And that's one of the areas, particularly in campaigning, I'm looking at is how we can harness the love of dogs in this country mm-hmm. to stop the breeding of dogs for animal testing.
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, you, you know, things are not as black and white as perhaps we would like it to be. Um, we can't affect change immediately as you were saying, you know, if you take away trophy hunting in Africa, these these people still need a source of income. And, you know, it's up to somebody to find that source of income. We we can't just, from over here in the UK, say, stop doing this.
1: I agree. I agree. And, you know, we've also just got to keep thinking about you know, not being seen to sort of preach to other communities yeah. in different mm-hmm. parts of the world, but try and find solutions to the problems, Absolutely, of human yeah. wildlife conflict yeah. and economic development and everything else. So there, there's so much more we have to do. Mm.
0: Okay, so we've we've raised our awareness and we've built our evidence case and we're going to come on to something that you have a lot of experience with and that is dealing with politicians. What is the best ra- way to approach politicians? Do you have any do's or don'ts? Or-
1: I think be very honest with them, you know, and, um, you know, politicians wary of me but they can't ignore me and i'm not tribal about my politics so i don't say i agree with that political party should be the only vehicle for change in the animal welfare wildlife protection movement that would be silly Mm -hmm. because they can all equally disappoint you when they're in office or in opposition um and i try and develop relationships where i can maybe bring about some change where you've got contacts that you know you can build trust with and to a degree i've definitely done that with the boris johnson government but it has been difficult and and it's currently, as we talk, basically imploding, you know, we had two cabinet ministers resign tonight, and I don't think he's going to be prime minister for much longer. In some ways, that will be a step back for the animal welfare movement, because it means we've lost a prime minister and his wife that, you know, generally yeah. have an interest, and we can lose a minister like Zach Goldsmith, I know quite well, who also has been genuinely committed to it. But equally, you know, there's big issues in this country at the moment about trust and integrity that, in my view, trump all of that, because, you know, we need to get a government in place that people can have confidence with again um so that's a wider and more important issue to a degree um politicians come and go they often they don't have enough time to focus but they do look at what their constituents raise with them and constituents do care about animal welfare wildlife protection issues it comes up in the mailbags all the time one of the leading issues so most of them can't ignore it I think if you're passionate and honest and persuasive, you you, you can build relationships with politicians, but don't put all your eggs in one basket and uh, treat them all with equal suspicion, because they're often very short term, moving from one issue to another and will disappoint you. And try and think long term about bringing about political change. And not all of it will be through direct links with politicians. It can be that you know, change happens because of broader societal change that can be brought about by the actions of individuals or businesses or community groups, whatever, it's not all because a politician has to change a piece of legislation that it's going to happen. So um, it is important. Um, I do like politics. I've always understood it, both in America, Britain, and Europe. I spent a lot of time with politicians, done a lot of political events, organizing events at political conferences in Britain, American conventions, United States, and all that, Um, and still find politics fascinating. But ultimately, I know it's just one tool that we have to work with Um, and you can't avoid it. Um, You know, at the moment, I do think we're in a difficult position in Britain because a government we have, which is falling apart, has promised a lot in animal welfare, wildlife protection, actually delivered very little. And the the debate I'm having with the other NGOs that I work with is that maybe we've got to stop trying to invest in legislation that we're not getting anywhere with and actually start looking at when the next election is going to come. How do we put out our manifesto to the parties about what we want to see them do? And if the Conservative government had dropped the ball, what are the opposition parties going to do yeah. to pick it up? Mm-hmm. And how are they going to develop manifestos that we can feed into, that we can hold them to, that will commit to bringing about the change that this government has failed to do? So I think those are the sort of big issues that we're having to look at at the moment. But, yeah, politics is important. And, yes, you do need to continue to reach out.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, you can reach out in many ways. Um, you've, I guess in person is probably um, the, the best way to get his attention or her attention.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, I'm fortunate because I'm loud, because I'm influential. Yeah. Because I've got a face in the media,
0: mm-hmm.
1: politicians know that, ah, you know, I know who he is and, and don't get on the wrong side of him. But equally, if you harness him, he could actually be quite useful to yeah. you. So, you know, it's a two-way thing with them, isn't it? They get something out of you, you get something out of them. I often get that with politicians, you know. They want to be seen with me on a campaign issue that they feel is going to get them a bit more popularity and a bit more support, or they're going to hide away They think I'm going to throw something at them that's, you know, something yeah. going to cause them more difficulty. Well, I guess, that's And I have of- confrontations with some you know, very public confrontations with the defense secretary, Ben Wallace, who potentially will be a strong leadership contender when Johnson falls. So this man might end up being <laughs> prime minister. And I'll have to deal with him then. Me and him have not got on. You know, we've publicly had, you know, very, very heated discussions in the media and he's made statements about me in mm-hmm. select committees and things some of which I, I feel are not justified. i I you know in the documentary i'm asked as to whether i said some things about him that i might regret in the heat at the moment i said yeah you know i didn't quite realize some of the pressure was under but i don't think he realized the pressure i was under either maybe we could have reached out and worked on something together yeah.
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: maybe one day we can but you know these things happen it's not often that you know you get a situation like that where a wildlife campaigner suddenly gets drawn into a debate mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. a defense secretary or the prime minister or the prime minister's wife and i have to be quite honest it's mm-hmm. just the way it's, it's just played out yeah because of the way some things have been decided and because of the political issues that came out about it.
0: Mm. How do you pick your battles, Dominic? There's so much going wrong in the world, particularly for animals these days, um, and there's so many complex issues, and you can't fix them all. How do you choose your battles?
1: Yeah, and it's a problem for me because I get lots of people contact me, as you can imagine, on lots of different things they want me to help them with. And yeah. sometimes I have to ignore them because I just don't have the time to pick it up and respond. Other times I do try and help with a bit of advice. Sometimes I get very involved with it, like you know Sam Hutchinson, the lady I mentioned earlier on. I'm now helping and advising her charity effectively because I think what she's doing is terribly important, and I'd really like what she's trying to do. Um, so you know, sometimes I just see something come along and I think you're doing the right thing. You know what? You've got an opportunity to harness this, but I'll give you a hand because I think I can help mm-hmm. you. So I think it it depends on, on how something plays out like that, really. Um, I do choose carefully the issues that I throw my energy into, um, because I think I can bring about some change. Um, and you know, since leaving the Badger Trust in 2020 and taking on a more broader campaign areas of work, I've had a bit more time to choose different things. Yeah. I do less on Badgers now. I still keep my finger in the pie, but there's people that are leading on it in different areas. And I've done seven years, written a book and everything. I don't necessarily need to be seen as a leading voice on badger protection in Britain anymore. And I think others can step up, but it gives me time to do more in different areas. So I wanted to do more about the pharaohs. Definitely very committed to that. Definitely want to do more on animal testing, particularly in relation to dogs that I'm working on and general dog welfare, which I'm more and more involved with continue to do work on issues like trophy hunting that are very much you know hot topics at the moment and look at issues like wildlife crime and hunting here in britain and wildlife issues around rewilding and things that i think we need to do so much more about as well so there's no shortage of things that i can get involved with to be quite frank the day is just never going to be long enough you know and you can't do justice to everything so you do have to pick your battles carefully
0: absolutely otherwise you're just you're just going to burn out
1: yes and, and you And emotionally gonna- you go around a, you know in a, in a world where you can't really unfortunate you know this is a lifestyle almost to me i, I earn money mm-hmm. and i earn kind a pretty good living by keeping on top of everything i have to keep at it yeah not that i used to work in the corporate world but you know what it's not it's not about that to me anymore you know i can learn half the salary of what i earned in the corporate world and be happier mm-hmm. because of what i do every day and what i think i can influence and i did when i was working for corporations and often saying things i didn't necessarily believe in but they paid me good money to say it anyway
0: Yeah, I mean, it's fantastic that you're in that position because, you know, I was going to ask you what kind of motivates you to get up in the morning and start this campaigning all over again?
1: Well, tomorrow I'm going to be at a court case in, in Southwark in London with League Against Cruel Sports, who I do work with, about, you know, a, a case of a leading figure in the in the uh, fox hunting movement that was found guilty in, in, in the autumn of last year for breaking the law. He's now appealing that case. I think he'll lose on appeal, but we'll be back out of the court again tomorrow. Right. So that type of thing, that you know, you know I like to do where I can sort of be there with, with organisations as they try and be at the, the tip of, of breaking stories that they're involved with. Um, Friday, I'll be with the Royal College and Veterinary Surgeons because I'm one of the, I sit on their veterinary nurses council, they have the open day and meeting various people and listening to presentations and speeches. And so the veterinary industry still remains important to me. You know, and and next week I've got Bird Fair, as I said, the big event where we're chairing various events on wildlife crime and a big question time event. We've got an event I'm involved with, the International Whaling Commission down in Brighton that we're hosting with ministers. Uh, The week after, uh, looking at the anniversary of the moratorium that we we brought in in 1982 to protect whales in the Southern Ocean. So it never really ends. There's lots of different things I do all the time. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm not complaining. And I've got these two debates in Parliament next week that we're doing on on bear hats, as I said, and on the Pharaohs as well, which will keep us busy.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're are two issues I was I was going to talk about because you do you're actually going there to do a um, a protest as well, aren't you? I believe.
1: Yeah, there'll be two prostatic protests. You just draw attention to what's yeah. going on. But we'll get sitting on both debates. We'll see how those debates go. We've got some media we're working on as well, and we've got follow-up activities. You, as, you, as you said, neither of those debates on the day is going to change yeah. these, these mm-hmm. issues. But it just keeps the focus on it and gets more MPs engaged in what we're trying to do as well.
0: I mean, they're both absurd. To me, they're both absurd issues, really. I mean, the, the grins, there's no excuse for killing 1,400 um, dolphins in a day. Yes, there's there's literally no excuse for it. There's no, no reason that you would need to do that. And the bearskins is is just crazy because you know the, the government argue that it's a byproduct of something that the Canadians are doing, which is good. Um, but but why why be involved in that? Why not just switch it to a synthetic material
1: and not use it's, a bearskin? A lot of this comes down to tradition. You know, the, the British government say that it's tradition to use bear fur hats. That, Faroese government says tradition to kill whales and dolphins. Well, tradition is just a smokescreen for cruelty, and that's. It doesn't. I come up right. against that a lot.
0: Tradition doesn't make something right, though, does it? There's lots of things that have happened in the past, but but that doesn't. Agree. I agree. Make it I, agree right. I
1: agree completely. Uh, but it is an argument you often come like culture and tradition yeah. should allow us to continue animal cruelty, and it's an argument that I constantly have to fight in the work I do to a large degree. Um, and those are just two examples of it.
0: Yeah, I know that you were you you kind of were called the badger man there for a little while. Um, with the BT, BTB issue, mm. um, and that's still ongoing. Another yes. crazy kind of situation uh, where we're killing a protected
1: species? We are, yeah. Badger is protected uh, by law because it was persecuted um, for many, many years by badger baiters who filled in the sets and put dogs yeah. down to fight them. Um it's a disease that's a problem for the cattle industry, but primarily it spread from cow to cow. Little evidence that it spreads back from badger to cow, but they kill them anyway. Over £100 million of taxpayers' money has been spent since wow. 2013. Over 170,000 badgers killed, many by a so-called controlled shooting method that leaves them wounded, takes up to four or five minutes for them to die of blood loss or organ failure. It's a horrible policy driven by demonisation of the species within the farming industry and within yeah. government to a degree and growing evidence that it's not working and uh we've tried everything we can you know to try and stop it with you know mixed success court cases legal challenges interventions from the prime minister you know all the things that have gone on i wrote a book on it done huge amounts of campaigns and media on it but it still it still continues um yes and it is a tragedy it's a tragedy that should never have happened in the first place but it shows how difficult it is when a policy starts is how to try to be like trying to turn around an oil tanker it's not easy to do
0: yeah and of course, your work with trophy hunting, I believe the Born Free Foundation have moved their statues to
1: Bristol. They have indeed. Yeah, I've seen some of that today. It looks really good. It's a great exhibition, actually, and it's a great way of engaging with people with that wonderful sculptures as well.
0: We've got a couple of questions uh, that have come in for you, if you're ready, Dominic. Please, yeah, I'll take them, by all means. Um, the first one is uh, from Joanna. Um, how do you look after your mental health when dealing with such emotional, difficult and controversial issues on a daily basis? both with the distressing things like the animals that go through, but also the potential backlash that you could get from other people?
1: It can be difficult sometimes. I manage it pretty well on most of the issues. The Now's thing really, really was difficult. Um, I wasn't with Penn in in Afghanistan, which you can imagine what he was going through. But I was living every twist and turn of what was happening there and then trying to fight a government here, and that was hard. No sleep for two weeks. You know, I was almost breaking down there were some mm-hmm. of the interviews I was doing while I was in tears and it was so visible you know you were shaking because you were yeah. so angry but you'd committed so much to it and it was playing out in the public domain and there's a point in the documentary I explain I, you know my sister everyone was following this so I didn't realize how big the story had become you know I was working on it like this behind a, a computer screen to a large degree called mm-hmm. on on zoom calls and things and she said, listen, you've got to get out of the house because this story has gone absolutely huge. Everyone's talking about it. It's all over the television. Every time you do an interview, millions of people and Pen and everything. So, you know, it was on the Saturday when we finally got Penn on the plane out of Kabul. And I, I was in a pub in a town nearby where I live, where my mum lives. And my sister was there. And I, and I got this call from the Sunday Times saying they had this leaked telephone message between Penn Farthing and an aide to the Defence Secretary, which I knew with the message because I remember when it, was, when it was made, the call. And it was very explicit and he was very angry and tired. And they said they were going to run it on the front page. And they were going to basically destroy his reputation before he got back. And he couldn't talk because he was cut off, you know, trying to get out of this country. And I literally had to take on defending him. And I had this really heated discussion with the journalist concerned, and my voice carries, saying why she shouldn't publish it, what the implications of it were, and why this wasn't fair and reasonable, all the rest of it. And I went, I sort of came back to the table, you know, in quite a distressed state, sat down. And then all these people came over to the table, you know, random strangers. And I thought they were all going to complain that I'd ruined their day out. And they all wanted to shake my hand and buy drinks and meals and said they'd followed what was going on on television. And they knew who I was. And they were so supportive of Penn Farthing and what we were doing and that they wanted to support. Something. And it just I just brought me to tears, to be quite frank. And my sister just it just it was one of those moments. that I realized I was involved in something that had taken a lot of my energy and emotions that had become a much bigger story outside everyone else was following as well.
0: Yeah, I, I was in Australia at the time, Dominic, when um, all this was happening, and uh, you were you were actually made Australian TV over two cases, which was yeah. Geronimo and uh, yeah. Nowzad.
1: Yeah, exactly. So you could see how big it had become, and and that's the point. So to, to your, you know, listeners' question, that was difficult. That was really difficult, and then it got more difficult because the people that contacted me that were left behind that didn't get out in the Nowzad airlift, and um, that haunted me. To a point where i didn't know where to put it to bed because you know my partner who's very supportive of my work said listen you've got to really try and switch off from it and don't take any more messages don't look at any more emails or whatever from people that really want to get out and then a vet who's become a really good friend um, contacted me and said, listen, I'm in contact with this group of vets left behind. They want to get out. Can you help us? And I thought, oh, and she goes, listen, if anyone can do it, you can. <laughs> so I sort of put another consortium of people together in Britain, America, Israel, Gibraltar and various places. And we, we raised half a million pounds. We went and we took them out. We got them smuggled out, 92 men, women and children and animals. And they're now all in Pakistan, but we've been fighting to get them into Britain or another country. And we've done you know tv and radio stuff on that story as well but in a way that helped me to come to terms with it that i wasn't going to leave them behind uh and that we did everything we could um and you know there's still more to be done they need to be given a safe secure home but they're out of the horrors of kabul um and they're in safe secure location mm. in, in pakistan yeah. but we've got to get them a secure future home mm. but yeah that was hard on other things you know it, it's the the Ukrainian thing I wanted to do something about and I just felt we could and and the government moved and I was really emotionally like all of us when that war broke out it just was horrendous you know and I just thought I could do something I thought was in a place where I could get the refugees in with their animals and I just threw everything at it and Mm. it took a lot out of me but you know what I was really pleased when the government moved on it and said we're going to do it (laughs) and we're actually going to listen to what you say and we are going to change all the rules Mm -hmm. and we're going to get them in and then when you know refugees contacted me to say they'd now come in with their dogs and they thanked me yeah, that, that must was, be really was nice. Really yeah. Nice. And it makes you think, yeah, this is worth doing. Yeah, yeah. This is worth doing. You're, you're making difference to people's lives because of mm-hmm. what's going on. Um, some of the animal cruelty does get to you. Some of the frustrations, the abagical issue over the years got to me. Um, I get very upset when I see, you know, the stuff going on in the pharaohs when you think you're making yeah. progress and then they're back killing again. And you just think, can I do anything to stop it? But you, you do what you do. You do what you do. And I sometimes get attacked by individuals and various statements are thrown around. I did put a tweet out yesterday saying some people call me racist. Yeah, I saw that. Colonial because of what we do on Trophy onto so racist because, you know, what I say about the Faroe Islanders people or just wanting to stop it. I'm not racist, you know. I was accused of racism during, and it comes up in the documentary. It was a very difficult time when some of the people I respect in the anti-racist movement, effectively, people I've worked with in some cases, turned around and said you were putting dogs before brown people. It wasn't the case. <laughs> yeah. It was a horrible thing to say, but it was being thrown around yeah. in the political melee of the pets before people argument. And I just said, well, you know, I've rescued over 192 men women children out of Afghanistan. What yeah, have yeah. you done? Yeah. <laughs> <Exactly> <laughs> so right. before you... But that's the way i closed it down. But it was upsetting. It was upsetting when people make those claims because some people believe it. They believe I, that we didn't care about the people. We just cared about rescuing dogs, which wasn't the case.
0: Wasn't I the could case. never really understand this argument of people before dogs because no matter how often people said the dogs go in the hold and the Mm. people go in the chairs.
1: Yeah, yeah. I know, but, you know, it was partly the Ministry of Defence who were just trying to create an environment that was increasingly hostile to what we were doing. They basically were trying to stop the Prime Minister signing it off. And in the end, to be quite frank, he did. But then he never embraced it and actually admitted he did it, which is typical Boris Johnson. Yeah. You know, he's, he's going down in flames. But I, this is one of the best things he did, but he never actually admitted <laughs> it. And I've had that discussion with various people around it. I said, why don't you just say it the way it is? Why don't you just say you did it? Because you know what? People would be grateful for what you did, but you don't. You keep coming out and blustering and lying, saying it was nothing to do with me. But there you go. That, that's a, another yeah. issue for another day.
0: Mm-hmm. Another quick question from one of our listeners. Um, when is the uh, Nowzad documentary out?
1: 28th of August at 9 p.m. on Channel Four. There you go. Okay. That's that, that's the broadcast time I have at the moment, unless it changes.
0: Okay, uh, but
1: that that and that's basically the anniversary of the withdrawal. So they've they've got a, a slot over the bank holiday weekend, which is almost exactly a year from the day that we got that plane yeah. out of there. So it's good timing to do it. And I think it'll be a very good documentary. Pen Farving's obviously interviewed in depth. I'm interviewed in depth. Hamida, one of the vets that was rescued, because we haven't really heard from the people that were rescued. You know, the debate has revolved around the debate of Pets for People. But we've not heard from the people, so it will do mm-hmm. that. But Some of the politicians and people that have been critical will be there. But I hope that, I hope it will be a good balance piece. I, I know I've worked hard with the, the, the producers, so I think they've come up with, with, and they've got a good track record of producing, you know, good good documentaries. So let, let's look forward to it. I hope it will tell the story from all sides.
0: Yeah, I think that'll be an interesting watch all round, really, because, uh, like you say, it'll be interesting to hear from the people that were actually rescued in the
1: operation. Yes, exactly, and how their lives have changed as a result. Mm -hmm.
0: Another question from Nicole. Um, from, From the badger culling to slaughtering dolphins and trophy hunting of endangered species, isn't there a bigger problem we are looking at, and it's man's belief we are better than other beings? In other words, speciesism is a global rampant problem.
1: Yeah, we just destroy everything, to be quite frank, isn't it? The problem is that I do meet lots of people who despair of people and just want to help animals, and I fully understand that. But ultimately, unless we can work with people, we can't protect animals. Uh, So a lot of what I do, and the older I get, the more I understand the humanitarian side as well as the animal protection side. And in some ways, you have to bring them together, and that's not always easy to do. Um, and you've got to be careful you don't fall into stereotypes of saying that a whole country is effectively cruel or evil when actually it's a certain group of individuals within it or it might be a government policy that's driving it there's good and bad in every nation in the world when it comes to protecting animals and animals it's not about race color and ethnicity everyone can be cruel to animals or they can be good to animals Um, and and we're trying to sort of work our way through all of that but yeah there are times when i'll be honest with you i despair at the human race and i do say that quite often there's no question of that
0: i think all of us often do really um
1: But then I don't because I also meet great people along the way that really care and do lots of amazing things for animals. And I think that's what keeps me going. That kind
0: of turns the human race around for you.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Um, another question from Paul. Um, how many tweets do you see when you're mentioned? Do you see all your tweets or when people mention you?
1: or, or um, do you? A, I that? Sometimes I look at what people say about me just to check up. I must admit, <laughs> I'm probably like one of those people, so where do you do it? Because I, sometimes I might miss someone saying something that I want to check <laughs> up on. Not all the time, but I do that sometimes. <laughs> there's lots of stuff I do miss, to yeah. be quite frank. I mean, it's, it stuff goes on around isn't? my head. I don't really yeah. know, you know? Um, and there's lots of groups that people talk about you mm-hmm. or... That I've tried I've had to go back through the NowSA stuff quite forensically because there's been so much discussion and debate and so many people got opinions. And because I've been working with the documentary makers, I've been trying to find my way through all of it. Yeah. So I had to go back over emails and videos <laughs> and messages going quite forensically in that case, because when you get involved in, in a documentary of that kind, you're trying to make sure that you've got everything as accurate as you can. And you'll yeah. see in the documentary, mm-hmm. they've actually put a whole wall of people together, you know, Johnson and everyone. And I go through it in, in, on the program about who did what and where and why <laughs> to try and talk about how this all came together. And yeah. I hope that comes out well in the documentary. But we thought that was that was really important for the viewers to be honest.
0: Is there anything else that you would like to share? Um, We've got no more questions from listeners. Is there anything else that you can say that can help people become a more effective advocate? Um, Do do you have one piece of key advice?
1: Yeah, be enthusiastic and and have compassion and belief in what you're doing and saying. Um, it doesn't matter what you're arguing about, a local nature reserve across the way or an international conservation issue or cats or dogs or whatever. Have some real belief and passion. And I think that will carry other people behind your cause yeah. and do care about these things. You know, I care about them. And as much as it brings stress and problems when you you put your head above the parapet, yeah. it's better that you care. It's better that you speak out. You know, I was really enthused by the, the 12, 14-year-old children that we we did this uh, session with, with born free at London University a few weeks ago it was fascinating not only that I could present on my work but then we engaged in workshops with them where they were thinking about campaigns And all of them all of them had passion and ideas about what they wanted to do in the future and, and to me that's terribly important and I would say that to any of your listeners you've got children have you got people that you connect with younger people try and influence them try and make them think because ultimately they're the ones that are going to have to grow up in the world yeah, that we've left absolutely. behind yeah. with all the problems and it's not going to be easy it's not going to be easy but if they've got creativity, innovation, enthusiasm, care, and compassion, they can make this world a better place for people and animals. So that's what I, I think I just leave that point with everyone tonight.
0: Okay. I mean, I think you need three things really to be a successful advocate, and that's passion, commitment, and knowledge.
1: Yes, I think so. And I think if you can combine all of those and, you know, grit and determination to keep going, then <laughs> think- you get worn down by it. then yeah, I think that. but it can be very rewarding work. And I, I would, yeah. anyone who can do this and keep going, you know, do it. It's worth it. Yeah,
0: and I think you certainly have all of these um, traits, Dominic. You, you've definitely got the passion and the drive um, and certainly the knowledge to to be a successful advocate. And I uh, thank you for joining us tonight on All About Animals Radio and the Effective Animal Advocacy Show to share your knowledge with us.
1: Not at all It's been a pleasure and thank you so much for having me on. I've really enjoyed it.
0: Absolute pleasure. We hope for a big Not turnout a on Monday in London. Um, thank I'll, you. I'll try and make it myself. Perhaps we can, we can do a live <laughs> broadcast from London. And why not? Yeah, it'd be great. Yeah.
1: Uh, Why not? That'd be brilliant. Let's do it. Thank you, Dominic. Not at all. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Join us next time on Effective Animal Advocacy here on AAA Radio. My guest will be Mark Abraham, a.k.a. Mark the Vet. We will be discussing his new book, Be More Mosquito. In the meantime, be sure to check out some of our previous broadcasts in this series in our On Demand section. Thanks for listening.